Uh, okay, John 4, uh, verses 4 through 7. If you all want to follow along, feel free. So, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? We are in our Her Story series, and what we're doing is we are talking through some of the ways that our scripture speaks about men and women and gender equality and gender equity, and so we've um, sort of explored some different passages, passages like ones that talk about dominion, right, words like dominion, and we've discovered that men and women are, have co-dominion, right, and then we've looked at words like submission, and we've seen that men and women have co-submission, right? What we're finding out when we get through our scriptures is that uh, God wants uh, an egalitarian society, which means that one gender is not better than the other. Uh, genders work together. We're starting to find that out right in our Her Story series. And usually in not only this series, but in all the series I've done for like, it feels like the past year, I have been bringing up the Samaritan woman at the well. How many people have heard me bring that woman up? Ad nauseum, right? And I've brought her up to be like, this is equity. This is what equity looks like. This is what affirmation looks like. And so I, only, I, thought, I was like, you know, it's probably appropriate if I just tell the whole story and we tell the whole story of who this woman is and what she means to us and, and what she means to the Gospels. And frankly speaking, the reason I bring this woman up all the time is because I think this is possibly one of the best stories that highlight what Jesus has come to do for us and why the Gospel is good news. So I'm going to tell this story to you. All right? We good? Good. We're going to start in Genesis in order to tell this story because... You know, we're not just going to look at the scripture and like pick it apart without going through context and culture first. Am I right? Right, right. Good. So I don't know why I said that. But anyway, Genesis 24, verses 1 through 61. I'm going to read them all to you. No, I'm not. But what I am going to do is I am going to paraphrase for you Genesis 24. We have someone named Abraham. And Abraham is considered the father of all, na of, of all nations, right? God says, I'm going to make a nation of many people through you. And so uh, Abraham has a son, and his son's name is Isaac. Now it's time for Isaac to get married. And so Abraham says to his servants, he says, you know what? I want you to find Isaac a wife. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you some camels. I'm going to give you some jewelry. I'm going to give you some gifts. And I want you to go to a, ready for this, a well. And I want you to go to a well in the town called Nahor. And I want you to go. And the first woman that comes to you and offers you a drink and then, and, then, and then waters your camels as well, that is the woman that God has chosen to be Isaac's wife. So the servant goes, brings the camels, brings all the jewelry, brings it all. And what does he do? He goes there and he starts asking people for a drink at this well. Okay? Finally, this woman named Rebecca comes up. She gives the servant a drink, and she waters the camels, and the servant is like, praise God, you are the one that is going to marry Isaac. This is what God has foretold. And it just so happens that Rebecca's family and Abraham's family are related, and that's a good thing when you want to get married in those days for some reason. And, and that's a thing. And so, and so they were like, yeah, this is great. And so Rebecca and, and, and Isaac, they get married at this well. And so this well is a symbol of unity, and it's a symbol of union. It's a, a symbol of celebration and affirmation and marriage, right? That's what it's a symbol of, a coming together. Let's fast forward. Genesis 29. Rebecca and Isaac have a son, and his name is Jacob. Jacob goes to this well. Where's the well? Nahor. What well is it? The same well where his parents' arranged marriage happens. 
He gets there, and he sees this woman. It happens to be his cousin, Rachel, this beautiful woman. And he goes to the well, and he takes the cover off the well, and he says, you're the most beautiful woman I've seen. And he kisses her, and he waters her sheep for her from the well. And then his uncle comes and says, isn't this wonderful? You should get married because we get married like this. Um, this is what we do. And once again, this well has become a symbol of unity and marriage and love and affirmation and celebration, right? That's what it is. Now, Jacob's name gets changed. Does anybody know what Jacob's name gets changed to? Shout it out if you know it. Israel. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. So now, not only does this well represent the unity and the coming together in marriage of people, but now it represents the unity and coming together of nations, Right? So it's a nation. It's a, it's a well where Israel is built and founded upon this well, upon this nation. And this well becomes this symbol. It becomes like a, a national symbol of how the country got started. Now, I know this doesn't fit perfectly because um, of the inequality that happened uh, at this time, but you have to think of it this way. Think of it as um, Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Okay? I know that's good news for some, bad news for others, but the nation was started there for better or for worse. Right? And it's sort of become this national symbol. Do we get that? Right? Okay, so that's what this well has become. Jacob's well has become this national symbol. And so Israel is this wonderful nation, and everybody gets along, and the well is right there, representing unity and the coming together of nations and the beginning of nations and celebration until 920 B.C. And in 920 B.C., Israel, the northern part, says, you know what? We're really, really tired of having to travel all the way down to the south to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, packing up the kids is tough, it's exhausting, and we don't want to do it anymore. So what they do is they say, we're going to build another temple. And the temple that we are going to build um, is going to be built in one of our cities, and the city is called Samaria. So they build another temple in Samaria to worship God there. And the people in Jerusalem are like, you can't do that. So what happens? A civil war breaks out. Civil war breaks out between the people of Israel, and it gets really bad and really nasty. And so southern Israel, where Jerusalem is, they align with the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire comes, and it attacks the people of northern Israel, where Samaria is. And what happens is uh, the northern part of Israel gets taken over by Assyria. And so then you have the northern part of Israel. The people start intermarrying with Assyrians, and they start worshiping Assyrian gods and taking on Assyrian customs. And at that point, Israel is no longer a nation. In fact, they start calling themselves by the places that they worship God. So in northern Israel, they no longer call themselves northern Israel. Now they call themselves Samaria and Samaritans. And in the bottom, they call themselves Judah, uh, Jerusalem, and they call themselves Jews. Got it? So we have Samaritans and we have Jews. And they were once a proud, united nation together, and now they're divided. And in fact, they call each other things like half-breeds and mongrels and subhuman because of intermarrying that happened in the north. And they no longer associate with each other to the point that this, these two places are geographically as close as New York and New Jersey. And yet, to get anywhere else, they would go around Samaria. They didn't even want to associate with it that way. Okay, and in the middle sits a well. A well that represents celebration and marriage and union and unity and love in the midst of division and hate and subhumanity and pain. Do we see why we need to tell that part of the story first? All right, let's jump back to John, all right? And when we jump back to John, here's what we get. So Jesus left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Do we see why that language is kind of important now? 
He had to go through there. So he comes to a town called Sychar near the plot of ground where Jacob had given to his sons Joseph. Jacob's well was there. All right? Jacob's well is there. So now we know the whole history behind Jacob's well. We know that it's this national symbol, a national monument. It's almost like, and this again, it's not going to line up perfectly, but we have to think of it as a story where it's like a white supremacist and a person of color show up at Independence Hall. Right? It has that sort of same connotation. It's like, okay, there's some tension here, and it's tension happening at a national monument, and this is what we have to feel. So what happens? What does Jesus ask? When a Samaritan woman comes to draw the water, Jesus says to her, Will you give me a drink? Now hold on. What was the question that was asked at the beginning in Genesis to start a nation? What was the servant supposed to ask? Shout it out. Will you give me a drink? This is a story that everybody knows. The same way we all sort of know the story of the signing of the Declaration, this is a story everybody would have known. So already Jesus is doing things that harken back to a national unity. Okay? And so this woman immediately knows what Jesus is up to. She immediately knows it. And so she says to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Really good stuff right here. Anytime you talk about something living in this period of time, that was, a, that was a, like a code word. It was a code word for unity. It was a code word for being a unifier. So what Jesus is saying is you want this unifying water. You want this water that, that, that will make us never thirst again. And she's, she's talking about history. She goes, I remember when this was unifying water. I remember when that was the case, right? But we don't have anything we can grab that with now, do we? Do you see what she's doing here? There's a little bit of anger there. And then she goes, are you any better than our father Jacob? Now, I love what she does because we don't ever get this from this woman. This woman is asserting her full humanity. She still doesn't know who Jesus is, but she will not be called dog. She will not be called subhuman. She will not be called a mongrel, which is what they were called. She is saying, you know what? It is our father, which means you are my ancestor. We come from the same place. We breathe the same air. We are the same family. Do not forget that when you talk to me. Remember, she doesn't know who Jesus is yet. Right? And so right away, I want to applaud the courage of this woman. I want to applaud the fact that she stands up and gives herself the humanity that she deserves. And so what happens? Well, Jesus says, well, whoever drinks again from this water will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become the spring water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he tells her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied, and so Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, this is the part of the story I think we got hung up on. Raise your hand if you've heard this story before. Okay, a lot of you. And here's the thing. What we do is we go to this part of the story. Because this part of the story is where we can find out that this woman is a sinner, Right? We find out that this woman has loose morals. We find out that this woman has just been sleeping around. She has five husbands. She's living with another guy. And all of a sudden, when we hear this story, we want to make this story a transaction. This woman, who is of loose morality, sees Jesus, who has living water. She says, I'm going to give up my loose morality for the living water of eternal life. And yay! Right? That's sort of what happens. 
And that's how we hear it. Do you have loose morals? Well, if you do, give it up for the living water of, Je of Jesus Christ, and yay! <laughs> we are missing the huge point here. If you've been part of our Her Story series, then we know something. And what's the big thing we know? We know women have no agency in the time of Jesus. Women can't make choices on who they're going to marry in the time of Jesus. So let's talk about this. Because in Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 24 says, a man may divorce his wife for any reason uh, and give her a certificate of divorce which allows her to marry again. Now, if a woman does something wrong, she does not get a certificate of divorce. And it could be that she ends up getting stoned to death. Okay? So what we might have is we might have a woman who's been handed a certificate of divorce by men who have done something wrong to her, and she's been allowed to remarry because of it. That's one thing. Deuteronomy 25, you, when you are married, and if, you're, and if your husband dies, you are to marry your husband's brother. It is also possible that this woman had a husband who died, and she had to marry her husband's brother. These were the laws for women at the time. There wasn't any agency. You couldn't decide what you were going to do. It was decided for you. Okay, do we, do we sort of get that? We sort of feel that. Now, I also want to take a look at the way she responds. Because Jesus says, you have five husbands and the person that you're living with is not your husband, which means maybe at some point she did something, we don't know. But this is how she responds. Sir, the woman said, I could see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, we, okay let's... Now... If you and I, dis we do stuff wrong. We're, we're sinners. Let's just be honest, okay? Nobody here is not a sinner. And if you say you are, you're lying, which makes you a sinner. <laughs> All right. So, so here's the thing. When somebody confronts us on something that we're doing, in general, we respond two ways. The first way we respond is, you know what? You're right. There's an issue. I have a problem. There's something that needs fixing in my life, and I want help to fix it. That's one way to respond. Another way to respond would be to say, I don't have a problem, you're crazy, leave me alone, right? We might deny it, right? Those are two kind of plausible ways you'd respond if somebody brings up your loose morals, right? This woman says, you're a prophet, our ancestors worship on this mountain, you say worship on that mountain. Let's go back to our little, you know, the, the white supremacist and the person of color at Independence Hall. What if the person of color at Independence Hall goes to the, the, the white supremacist and says, you have hated, you have spewed hate, you've assaulted, you've called people subhuman, and the white supremacist goes, you know, a lot of people say that Washington, D.C. is the nation's capital. I think it should be right here in Philadelphia. That's basically the way she responds. Does that make sense to anyone? Not really. Why does she respond that way? She responds that way because in something, and a lot of scholars will say there is something that Jesus is referring to in this that speaks directly to the fact that she is a Samaritan and living by a Samaritan law or living by a law imposed by Assyrians at some point, a law that would be different from the Jewish law. So he's saying you're living uh, by a different kind of law than you were supposed to live by before. This is also a possibility. The truth is we don't know for certain. We don't know. But when we focus on that part of the story, we miss so much good stuff because then Jesus sort of squelches the whole thing. And this is what Jesus says. It's, it, he says, yeah, you know what? He goes, listen. He goes, yeah, 
Do we believe that? Yeah, we believe that Jews think you should worship down in Jerusalem. We believe that's the only place to worship. Yeah, but here's what I want to tell you. A time is coming now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And, and the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now this would have floored the woman, and here's why. Because even though Samaritans and Jews are divided, when they were united, they had one thing in common, one beautiful thing in common, and that was Moses. And Moses is, is tending to a flock, or tending a flock, and a bush lights up on fire. And the bush lights up on fire, and Moses goes over to the bush, and the bush says, I want you to make Israel a nation again. I want you to make Israel a nation. Right now they're enslaved. And I want you to bring them back into unity. I want you to bring them back into peace. I want you to bring them back into celebration. I want you to bring them back into marriage with me. That is your job. Do that. Make them a nation. Unite them again. And Moses hems and haws, and finally he goes, I'll do it. And he says, who, who should I say sent me? And the bush goes, tell them that the I am sent you. Tell them the I am sent you. What does Jesus say? There's somebody who's coming that's going to reunite us. It's going to make us good again. And Jesus says, I am. The I am is here. And immediately, lights would have gone on and this woman would have understood completely what had gone on. That Jesus is there. The I am is there to end division. And that the I am is there to say that any kind of subhuman talk, any kind of talk of mongrels, any kind of talk of half-breeds, that is now gone. I am here to restore what has happened at this well. I'm here to restore the celebration, the the marriage, the union, the the, the affirmation, everything that you've lost. I'm I'm here to restore it right now. I am here to bring this back to what God intended it to be the whole time. A nation that's unified and celebrated and considered sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. That is what I'm here to do. And so there's a reason the woman runs off. She runs off and she tells her friends, the I am is here. Remember we were looking for the I am and he's reuniting us as a nation. And no longer will we be these second class citizens. We are affirmed, we're brought up, we're included. It's amazing. And the story ends by this woman becoming an evangelist. She becomes a preacher. It tells us that many were saved. Many were saved. Many believed. Wow, why did many believe? Because they all had loose morals? Or did many believe because what Jesus comes to do is reunite? And what Jesus comes to do is to reunionize? Or what Jesus comes to do is to, to reaffirm? Or what Jesus comes to do is to make something whole again that was broken? This is amazing. I love um, what what, uh, John Shelby Spong says about it. He says, Samaria was to be a part of a new Israel. No one was excluded. There There was a new and different understanding of what it means to be human, and that was what Jesus came to reveal. This story is not about sexual immorality, then. It is about faithfulness to God who draws us beyond human barriers, human divides, and human prejudices. And so the question that I have is what do we do with this? Because to me, you know what this story sounds like? It sounds like the greatest commandment. Lord, to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then go ahead and love your neighbor. 
even when your neighbor is an enemy. And so I think there's two parts to this. I think what Jesus is doing is Jesus, or Jesus is challenging our idea of who the Messiah is. The Messiah is not just a personal Messiah. The Messiah is a collective Messiah too, reuniting nations, right, and reuniting people. And so we look at that from both perspectives. And so I think what we do when we hear the good news of this passage is we say, good. As a church, we continue to work to reunite, to sort of live out the well, right? To sort of live out the unity and the affirmation and the celebration. And we do that by making sure that the people who are on the outside are brought in. And people who are called subhuman and less human are affirmed and, and made um, full. And so we live out values like our anti-racism value. And we live out values of all-inclusiveness for all people value. And we live out the value of making sure any foreigner who is ever in any trouble uh, is helped because that is part of this story. It's the good news of reunification with God. That's why. But then this story is also personal. It's personal because there might be people in our life that we need to reaffirm. People that we may be divided from. People that we might not understand, or people that we might, in our anger and in our bitterness, might say are subhuman. And perhaps you're that person. Maybe you feel like that person. You're like, you know what? I've been on the outside. I've been over here, and I feel like there's no way for me to get back. And the good news for you today is that you've never been gone. That God has been wanting reunification, and God has wanted us to be reunited and to be celebrated and affirmed the entire time. We are children of God. That is the bottom line. My dad, uh, my dad, you know my dad's transgender, right? I think everybody knows that by this point. Um, <laughs> when my dad came out as trans, I went to visit my grandparents who are 93 and 94. And they didn't really understand what it meant to be trans, or they didn't know about gender identity. And so when I went to visit them, they were a little confused, and, and then my grandma grabbed me, and she wouldn't let me go, and she said, you promised me you won't become a woman like your dad. And I said, Grandma, it doesn't work that way. And she goes, just promise me. And I went, all right. I said, all right, Grandma, I won't become a woman like my dad. And I just was like, bye. And I was like, oh, man. I was like, what is going to happen when my dad goes to visit? And sure enough, my dad went to visit about a year later. And my dad's name used to be Paula, and now her name's Paula. So Paula went to visit. And sure enough, my 93 and 94-year-old grandparents, they see her and, you know, it's different, you know. They, they don't understand gender fluidity and gender identity and all the rest. And my grandpa has been a pastor uh, for, for years and years and years, 94. He's getting ready to leave. And he just walks up to my dad and he gives her a hug. And he says, I really love you, Paula. Not Paul, who he's known for 60-plus years. I really love you, Paula, because my grandfather, not having a clue as to what any of this means, sees his son as a child affirmed by God. And if his son says, you know what, I, I've been a woman this whole time, my whole life, then who am I to say anything else except you are loved? That's what my 94-year-old grandfather does. And it makes me want to know what we need to do. What steps do we need to take like my 94-year-old grandfather? It's so much easier to say, you know what, you were divided, we're going to stay divided, we're going to stay angry. And maybe we do the hard work of looking at that person at our job who gives us nothing but stress and who makes our lives really, really difficult and saying, you know what, I don't have to agree with you and we might not ever agree, but I want to start off by telling you that you are absolutely affirmed and loved and that's how I see you. You're united with me. Perhaps it's a spouse. Perhaps you're like, I thought marriage was easy. <laughs> and it's not. And you're like, 
I need to stop what I'm doing and I need to look at my spouse again. I need to say to my spouse or my significant other, I need to say, you are united. We are united. We're in this together. We are both loved and children of God. And let's start from that place. Maybe it's somebody else, a roommate, a friend, whoever that might be. What happens when we do that? We live out the well. We live out that story. We live out the story of a Savior who says, you know, this place I give you, and this place is unified, and this place is affirmation, and this place shows you you're never apart from me, and that when I get what I want, it is always for us to be one together as a nation undivided, as a people undivided, as a relationship undivided. And if we can live that out, then we are living out the gospel message of the great I am. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that brings people into equity and brings people into the fold and brings people into your love and and never stops. And Lord, if there are people in this room today who need to be brought into the fold and be brought into the love, I pray that you would do that for them. Surround them, give them um, the security that they need to know that they've never been far from you. And Lord, if there's someone on our heart who needs to be affirmed, Maybe we haven't done our best to affirm them. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to do so. And thank you for Jesus Christ and for him asking for a drink, creating a unity that will last for eternity. I pray this in your name. Amen.